This is episode two of our special podcast series documenting the wild and wonderful journey of The One Two, a female-led startup with a tech solution for bad bras. Last time you got to know co-founders Margot and Maria, who met during a startup incubator program and decided to join forces. First on the agenda, raising capital. And it's no secret that doing so as a woman is hard, let alone trying to fundraise from men who struggle to understand the product or the problem. But Margot and Maria did not let this obstacle stand in their way. And it was their incubator program, Antler, who was the first investor on board. By the time we spent one month working together, we got our first check. And that was just the beginning. So it kind of felt like we were on the right track. There is something to it. There is something to our partnership. It was going well. And then two months later, we had a demo day that was set up by the startup incubator where Margot did the page, after which we got our second investor. And after second investor came third, fourth, fifth. We feel like we've been giving people a genuine opportunity and a genuinely really good deal. And so from my point of view, even when I started the Antler program, I was like, good for them that they've got me coming through this program. (laughs) A lot of people go there with just an idea or not even an idea. They're meant to go through this process, form a team and come out the other side. I've been working on this for years. I've spent hundreds and thousands of dollars of my own money, let alone my time. We're really building on this huge amount of work that I've already done. And similarly with Maria as well, she had literally come back from doing couture in New York. She'd raised millions of dollars over there. We were a team that was so experienced to take on this problem that if we hadn't have raised capital, it would have been farcical. I spent a little bit of time doing bench capital. What you look for in early stage, all you can validate is great team and that the opportunity is big enough. We are literally serving half of the world, most of whom are uncomfortable every day in this product. It wasn't difficult, but it shouldn't have been difficult. If it was hard for us, like who stands a freaking chance of raising any capital? I don't think, though, that we can ignore the fact, ultimately, most of the people we pitch to are men, most of the angel investors are men, most of the venture capitalists are men. And when we walk into that room, we are two women who've got a bra brand. And that is a hurdle to get over, and it always will be. They may have been walking into the lion's den, but Margot and Maria were determined. They networked, then networked some more, and started to seed the one-two out to investors. They weren't asking for checks just yet, but they were sparking a lot of interest. The recipe to raising capital, I believe, like FOMO, cannot be understated. And it seems almost crazy to say that, like you've got these sophisticated investors, and then actually what drives 90% of them is, do they feel like this deal's about to get away from them? And if they do, then yes, I'll jump on board and put money towards it. Even financial markets work like that. So you have to generate the FOMO. And so for us, there's a whole period of setting yourself up for the raise where we had conversations, said, this is what we're doing. We're not raising, but we might soon. Would you be interested in hearing about when we do? And then when we did, it was like, we are raising, we've got two weeks, we need checks in the door by next Friday. Are you in or are you out? 
it's like falling. We just had to jump and then fortunately everyone did come through. And then as soon as that momentum starts where you've got the confidence to jump and be like, okay, everyone come on board now or miss out. And then the more people who come on board, the stronger your story becomes and the more it generates more and more of that FOMO. And so when I was in venture, I used to say, you're either oversubscribed or you're screwed. Like there's no, (laughs) (laughs) you've either successfully generated the FOMO or people will take as much as they can or you're in trouble. When you develop something big, people see it and they want to be part of something big. And I think especially in the fashion industry, right, there's so much same-sameness. Who hasn't started a silk pillow brand or who hasn't started another hand mask to sell on Instagram? When you start developing that is fundamentally complex, different, and really ambitious, people with money, they see that and they feel it. And people want to be part of something new and exciting. You have to be bold. You have to be bold, you have to be complex, you have to develop something fundamentally difficult and new, money will come. Well, it's interesting because from a male perspective, I can imagine that a lot of people may have been like, well, it's just another bra. How did you communicate that you were actually innovating, not only in the physical bra product, but then also in the personalization technology that underpins the business? What? we communicated was that experience that we have when we walk into a department store where there's thousands of bras, but we all know that most of them aren't for us. We all know that most of them won't fit. And then we go into that fluorolit change room, try on like 10. For me, often none of them would work like at all. And that's not an uncommon experience. So I think what we tried to communicate was like, this is the experience that we have. And What we're solving is creating an entirely different experience. There's finding the right size. And so we've got this technology that helps you even identify what a better size. Then it's the product itself. You know, you walk into David Jones, most of those products are terribly engineered. They haven't been tested on a wide range of sizes. They've only been tested on a 12B and that's been good enough for them. And so we've created this product that's world-class and we've tested it not only on the 12B, but also on the 8C, the 8F, the 14 double G. We've really actually done our homework. At five millimeters off is the difference between a great bra and a terrible fit. And so you can just imagine the level of rigor and diligence to get this product to actually perform. And then the dudes are like, oh, um, can you patent that? You're like, Not really. Like we can't really get IP protection around like the five millimeters we trimmed off here or there, but it's pretty freaking hard for someone to unpick that and replicate it. And I guess also when we were fundraising early on, investors were wanting to see traction. Being in a physical product space, when you need to invest a lot of money into development of the product to start with, what is traction? We can't say we have particular revenue to showcase. So for us, we had to be creative to understand what our attraction can be and how can we demonstrate that to our investors. So Margot, Maria, talk to us about your strategy for fundraising. Did you play kind of different roles to get the best result? We naturally have different roles, right? And I think what I brought and the pitch, like I'd say Maria was my first investor and the pitch that I brought to her is there's this real problem. I've been really obsessed with it. I think there's a real opportunity there. I've custom fit hundreds of women and I think I've found a recipe to create 
a scale business out of this. I joined as a skeptic. That's true. I didn't think I had problems with bras. And then realizing that all my life I was wearing the wrong size. And then also realizing that my size is not even stocked in stores here in Australia. And it's actually impossible for me to go and try something that properly fits me because my back is more narrow, apparently, than what stores are able to offer. So step one for me was, okay, what is my size? So that was my first revelation. Step two is, okay, take all of the best bras in this size and try them on and see how many of them are fantastic. And I would try them again and again, you know, from the US, from any direct-to-consumer, latest and greatest. And Margot's prototype that she has developed mm-hmm. continued to be just so much better mm-hmm. than anything else. And so as we continued to go deeper and deeper, and I was learning so much from her around the fit and about the intricacies of that, that's what continued to give me excitement and confidence that what we are actually working on is fundamentally different from what the industry is able to offer right now. So then in the room, you were taking this kind of teacher-student mindset and pitching and you were like, this is what I've discovered. Yeah. And Margot is kind of taking me on this journey. Can I share with you my experience? Was that what it was like when you were in the room? So we pitch in a really informal way, especially with angels. Like our experience has been the best thing to do is to not be pitching, to not be selling. None of us likes to be sold to. It's the same with the FOMO thing. It's like, oh, we're doing this really cool thing. Happy to have a conversation with you about it. Really interested in what you, Investor A, can bring to us because we're considering raising capital and there might be an opportunity if that's something you're interested in and if we think there's a match. You know, like always making it a two-way conversation. It's much more fun as well for us to go in and ask people questions and have this flow, which is like, oh, what makes you really excited about investment? What could make, what would we need to tell you for you to be super excited about exactly what we're bringing? And then we just can tell that story and we can frame our story in the words that they want to hear and do that work for them. And we're talking to the investor as an equal. And that's why we say our rounds are 90% about preparation and then 10% about how we actually do the raise. Because once you've had those conversations of people are really bought in where they're like, I'm excited about what I can bring to this investment as well. Of course, I want to be on board. And then you're like, okay, great. We're raising now. Come in. So we ended up with quite a few FMCG investors and also technology investors. We've got the Atlassian person on the cap table. We have plastic surgeon as well as reconstructive breast cancer surgeon. And having had really detailed conversations with them around the technology that they use during their surgeries to be able to create support and lift for women and how much this was basically resembling Margot's technology for the structure of the bras, again, is just continued to prove that we are on onto something really special. They'd been pitching and pitching and pitching nonstop and their hard work was finally paying off. The duo closed their first round of investment and as two female founders building a consumer brand for women, it was no mean feat. But what was interesting was who was on their cap table. Surprisingly, it was made up almost entirely of men. That is, until Lady Brains sat down at the table. That's right. We've proudly invested in the one-two, and the decision for us was a no-brainer. Not only do we deeply understand the problem, yes, we've both had shocking experiences trying to find a well-fitted bra, but more importantly, we believed in Margot and Maria. 
with their impressive track records, their ambition, their creativity, and their ability to, despite all the challenges, continue to push forward. We just knew that we had to be involved. And it wasn't just us who bought into the brand. Lots of different investors also believed in what they were trying to create. Let me begin by saying that as an Antler LP, I've looked at many, many, many companies and many teams. I find there's often some excellent individuals with tremendous backgrounds, but uniquely I saw in Margot Maria a pair of founders who combined an intense understanding of the problem they were trying to solve and the capabilities that they brought to the table in terms of their backgrounds were significant. When I looked at Margot and Maria, I saw a team that I thought both had the horsepower to succeed and uniquely had the tenacity to go the distance. I've been a plastic surgeon now for over 10 years. And one of the recurring issues I have with patients is the lack of standardization and the frustration in being able to communicate the actual size of the breast to the bra they're wearing. There's nothing more frustrating than for a patient to fit into an ill-fitting bra, especially when they have large breasts. The increasing workload around the neck and the upper back will be even more detrimental in the long term. So my belief in investing in the bra company is not only to standardize the bra sizes in the industry, but also having better measured out bras, it will allow me to communicate better with my patients and also give us better predictability of the results, not to mention the ease for the women shopping for their bras. So it sounds like your experience of raising capital was very different than most people, especially most women. It sounds like it was a dream, but surely there had to have been some challenges getting to the point where the money was in the bank account. It's a roller coaster and we have definitely hit our fair share of shocks and challenges along the way. Ecosystem is predominantly male and that's reflective everywhere that you look. And so while we occasionally did have women as mentors and advisors, they were still in the minority. And we just had lots of really weird things that we had to prove. They used to ask us, are we going to focus on the bra niche or rather when are we going to expand into other categories? So we had to smile and politely respond and that I'd we say are focusing like, on bra we niche. Would, we would be really happy to win the bra niche. <laughs> bra niche, like the bra a niche. product that 50% of the population of the world to own like and yeah. wear every day and wear every day and like every hardly day. a niche when we met Margot already had a prototype of a product that was working she already had revenue she had customers who were raving about the product it wasn't like we just met and we were coming up with this idea right there right then and despite the fact that she had all of this traction already we continued to be asked to bring more and more and more to prove that it is a problem and then there is demand What were some of the things early on that you had to prove? What proof points were people asking for? The main one was showing that you've achieved super speed at something totally amazing in a ridiculously short period of time. And that's what what venture investors want to see and they get really excited about. And that is a huge amount of pressure as a founder. I was like, come on, I've done this business. I can show you I've got all these rave reviews. 
do you really need that really huge number to say, oh, you've already made it late one night under all this pressure? I was like, oh, you know what? Let's like be a little bit cheeky. And why don't we actually tell women that this is what's happening to us, that we are having all of these predominantly men saying that they don't believe that there's really a problem with bras. And we went onto a local women's Facebook group and just said, look, we are pitching to men that we want to solve the bra problem and they don't believe that it's a real problem. They say that they need a scale number to believe that this is a real thing. And we've created this website that captures email addresses for people who believe they have a problem and want to help us. What do you think? And we ended up with 400 comments of women being like, this is outrageous. Why are you even talking to these men? The end result was we got 800 women organically signing up to join our community, reinforcing that they had this problem. And so that was amazing. And that was really key to giving us that feeling that we'd achieved something big before we'd even started. I mean, this is why this story is so unique. Not only are you pitching to investors as female founders, which we have discussed is very difficult, but also you're pitching a product for women to men. What was that like going into those conversations? Because I'd been doing brows for so long, I was so super desensitized to it. I was like a gynecologist presenting about vaginas in a medical conference, like just no feeling of weirdness whatsoever. But Maria wasn't so far down the curve. You felt a bit more awkward. Yeah, it was definitely a learning curve as well. To be honest, I've never pitched a bra to men. So in a way, there was also a level of obliviousness. I didn't actually know how awkward or uncomfortable this would be. But then at the same time, it was really funny. So we'd be coming to these investor meetings and Margot would bring a box of bras and she would put it out on the table. And I'll be like, whoa, 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 that's a bit too much. Hey, there's like, you know, there are people walking around, maybe just one by one, maybe that's a bit too fast. And you can sort of see how some people, they blush a little bit or they start saying something professional, but you can sense a level of awkwardness. It is this awkward thing. Like it's so natural for me when I'm talking about bras to gesture to my breasts, (laughs) you know, like I'm like, and the thing is under wires do this. And I'm like pointing underneath my breast and then like the wires dig in in the center and props to a bunch of guys who are straight men who were pitching, who didn't even look down. The funny thing, right? So what I ended up doing a lot, because obviously I used to be the skeptic one and then Margot converted me right from the skeptic to the follower, to the devoted follower. And so I'm there talking about my experience of putting Margot's prototype on, looking at myself in the mirror and explaining how much better I feel about myself. And I can't believe how great I look while looking at the investor's eyes. And he's there saying, yeah. I mean, you were totally challenging the status quo. Like you're going in there and you're being super vulnerable and putting it literally all out on the table. And then to the point then, Margot, as it evolved, you had a baby, you're in there just like breastfeeding. That was also crazy, right? So much respect to Margot. Like we literally were pitching to an investor the day before Margot went to the hospital to have the baby. And she didn't question it once. Should she come or should she not come? And you can see this in the investor's eyes as well. They look at her like she's crazy, but they clearly love it. They love it because they think, oh, wow, okay, she's crazy. She's crazy enough to build this big vision. And then the baby was, what, a couple of weeks old and Margot was back pitching again with the baby. But saying that, one of our investors who's amazing, but he recently said, oh, I invested in them. I really believe in 
women, if you want something done, give it to a mother who's busy. And it just massively triggered this imposter syndrome in me where I was like, no, you don't understand. I am literally underwater. If I'm there with my infant, I'm not sleeping. Being a founder is freaking hard. Being a founder, when you've got a tiny baby, your emotions are all over the shop. There's a level of obliviousness to it where now I have like such mixed feelings about, is that the right thing to do over that period of time? Like I wasn't necessarily planning to be pregnant, but that was the way that it worked out and I was committed. So I did it, but it's really, really hard. Like it definitely made it harder and the odds are already against you in a startup. So it was full on. And and I think the other thing that's worth mentioning as well is like, despite the fact that Maria and I were so experienced, we still had, I would call them like predatory investors who approached us. And one result of that was one that we had thought checked out. We'd counted on them that they promised that they would take a certain portion of the round. It was a big portion of the round. And then they suddenly started asking for more. And for the preferential terms as well. Over our existing investors. And we were just like, absolutely not. No way. Like, it's like massive red flag. And so then we had to walk away. And so we actually walked away from an investor who was meant to be filling out our fund days before I was going away to give birth. Like, that is a stressful, intense thing to have to do. That would make you go into labour, wouldn't it? (laughs) (laughs) But was it an easy decision in terms of absolutely not, red flag, don't want to have this person on my cap table in my remit, but then I guess the second order consequences of that is, holy shit, I'm about to have a baby and we're actually... We need to close around. We don't have enough cash. I remember that moment. I think it wasn't a difficult decision because I feel like we had a chat between us and we felt the same way. And I felt both of us agreed that this is the right decision to make, despite the fact that it caught us off guard. And we were fortunate we had enough capital, right? Mm. So we closed that round. We still closed it on time and it was still oversubscribed. It just wasn't where we thought it was going to end up. And so then we had to come back and raise more capital when I had the young baby and finish it off. And that was when the breastfeeding and all of that happened where I had this very unexpected revelation. This is my second baby, right? And The first one was just such an all-encompassing experience, but I realized with him that there was no point in paying for a nanny. Basically, there's this whole period of time where all he did was eat, sleep, poop. Like, that's all they do. There's no point getting a nanny. I don't want to be away from him anyway. There's no point getting a nanny. He can just come. And so with the exception of one meeting, he just came to everything. And so I would be breastfeeding and he would be there in the pram as we were having the pitch. And if I was making an important point and he started to cry, I would give him to Maria, (laughs) who thankfully was cool with the whole thing. And I think being a bit audacious as a founder, and I was just like, screw it. If I can't go in and do this, we're fundamentally fundraising for a women's business. We want people on board who get that, who are on board with the journey, if they get put off and don't want to invest because I bring a baby in who just lies there in their pram and maybe is breastfed, which is a completely silent thing, maybe they're not for us either. And fortunately, it worked out. That's right. That was part of the whole story for me that was so exciting and attractive, right? Trying to disrupt and do things in a different way. If you're two women developing a product for women and you're doing it in a different feminine way, yet again, And if we're not disrupting, if we're not trying different things, why the hell we're doing it? 
I don't remember any investor being put off by that. So I do think that the times are changing. It's unusual for two founders, especially two female founders, to have such a relatively smooth and easy time fundraising. So we wanted to know how they did it. And we asked them about the nitty gritty details of their pitch. We're both former management consultants. So we went really hard on numbers and stats and quotes. We didn't assume any understanding of what it felt like to wear a bra, any understanding of what it felt like to go bra shopping. We tried to make it as closely as possible, replicated a B2B SaaS pitch, but with our product. And so we were like, this is what you would look for. These are the hooks that you would look for in a typical investment. Ours just happens to be bras. So the B2B SaaS, one of the metrics they talk about is customer acquisition cost to customer lifetime value and that ratio. So we would put those statistics into the deck. And so we would say it might cost us $80 to acquire a customer, but if she buys two bras from us a year for three years on average, then this is what we expect the payback would be for that specific thing. And when we talked about our margins, we would be like, they're similar to the margins you might expect in this category. But we got like all this interesting feedback. Yeah, we had actually from one of the women when we were practicing pitching together, she gave us feedback that our imagery in the deck is too sexual. And this is because we had women wearing underwear and lingerie in the deck. And she said, be aware that even I, when I look at your deck, I struggle to focus on what you say. Clearly, men would struggle even more. And so the question is, well, we make an underwear. What imagery should we use? What emotional reaction did that spark in you, especially coming from a woman? It's frustrating, right? I don't think we will ever fully understand. Like there's things that you can't have metrics around that you can't fully understand that are really frustrating. And one of them for us is as women, we do find a lot that things that we say aren't heard. And in multiple contexts, I'm sure everyone who's listening would resonate with that emotion. And we have that. And for us, we're like, is it because we're two women who are there and they're not hearing our voices? Is it because we've got a image? We don't think it's a sexy image. It's not like racy lacy. There's no nipples sticking out. It's a beautiful, basic, everyday bra on a beautiful woman with body diversity, skin diversity, all of that. It's immensely frustrating to think that you could be in there mm -hmm. talking about your CAC to LTV ratio and some man is just sitting there thinking about breasts and looking at the breasts on the page like that idea I cannot even like I just try not to think about it, to be honest and then also I really loved how first we were pitching and we were talking about breasts and explaining the problem that women are having and of course lots of men don't relate and at some point it was really funny when we started talking about men's underwear and trying to use the <laughs> parallel story of, well, imagine if you come to a store and you try to find underwear that is just comfortable and it doesn't write up and it holds everything comfortably, just the right size that you need. And imagine you can't find it. And imagine you go to a fitting room and there is a man that you've never met before. And he's there assessing you and suggesting to try underwear that doesn't fit you. But then he says, well, that's as well as you can do. I guess Maybe you'll just you have to... Maybe you can't fill that cup. Like. <laughs> exactly. Maybe you can't fill the cup. And that's what you have to buy because that's the best 
of the worst that is there valuable. You know, and that trick worked. It definitely broke the ice. But like fundamentally, it is so like I think it's hard for us to even believe how underserviced we as women are in this category, despite the fact that it's been around for so long. It's hard for even for me now with my experience. It's just ridiculous and mind-boggling. It's that too good to be true thing where I think often when we pitch people are like it can't be this bad what you're pitching is too good to be true. And we just say yes it is it's that underserved and not everybody believes that. And how do you see your role now becoming role models for other women that are trying to raise capital? We're still humble right like we still have a long way to go on this journey. It's not a home run yet. Far from it. (laughs) There are many years and a lot more pain before it will become a home run. And so I think, especially for me, I'm oversubscribed with the small children. And (laughs) so good. Like all I can do is just try and make the most of this business and trust that if this business is a success, that that will do really positive things for the ecosystem in and of itself. So you've gone through this entire process of fundraising. You've had a baby. You're well on the way to launching. How much did you raise? We haven't yet released the exact number, but it was high six figures that we raised. So a really substantive amount of money. And predominantly, it was to bring our product to market. Margot and Maria had achieved a massive milestone. They'd raised enough capital to get their business off the ground. But now they had to turn a prototype into a product. They had to find an overseas factory. They had to order stock. And they had to ship it halfway across the world. And then the pandemic hit. Next time with The One Two. So when Maria and I approached these factories, they just were not interested in doing business with us. And we got flat nose. There was no price we could pay. They say, well, guys, really sorry. Literally don't have enough people to develop your sample. Please wait a week, two weeks, a month. It took us a year to get from the point of providing a prototype to receiving a sample that resembled that prototype. 